Scott, let's begin with you. You've had admirers and some name recognition over the years. Why do you think you became famous after you opened Veritas? Have you gotten better, or did, was something else happening there? Well, I think I uh, matured as a chef. Um, uh, but for the most, most part, it, that restaurant, Veritas, put me on a, it elevated everything. I was always in a storefront restaurant, uh, Luma, no bar, nothing, even a good wine list. And Indigo was a very casual restaurant. Um, but we had the facilities at, at Veritas, which would raise the whole level. So to so some, so some degree, it's ambition of a restaurant that gains you that kind of recognition? Yeah, without a doubt, it's ambition. Uh, we have 2,300 wine selections now. Um, 2,300 now. Because I was thinking about Thomas Keller, who had a string of failures here in New York, and then he took over the French Laundry in the Napa Valley, and now he's been declared one of, if not the greatest chef in America. Did he become a better cook, do you guys think? Or uh, is, is something else no, happening I there? I think you have to be in the right place at the right time. He was a great chef at uh, Raphael years ago, and at Raquel also. Um, I think the restaurant was too big for him, and now he's in the right situation where he can really showcase his craft. Marcus, um, have you worked anywhere but at Aquavita in the United States? Uh, no, I haven't. And before Aquavit opened here, there were no Swedish restaurants of any consequence. Uh, uh, there was, I think back in the 50s and 60s, Copenhagen and like smorgasbord-style restaurants. Well, I, 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 I ate at Copenhagen, it's mm, not Aquavit. No. <laughs> well, I think, uh, just to go back to the question you said about Thomas Keller, I think it, it's um, about probably 50 to 100 chefs in America that are equal talent-wise. Talent but I think what Thomas did was extremely smart. He put himself in a part of the country where it's almost like France. People are not going back to the office. People are, it's not a rushed environment. People go to Napa for two things to eat and drink, to drink wine and eat. And it's a so, one-sitting restaurant, too. Yeah, so he, he, he decided to cook where it would fit his personality and build something around that. Most, more often, it's the chef takes a gig where might have a great location or a wine list, but it has nothing to do with him or her, his or her personality. And Thomas was, he said, if he's going to do this, he's going to do it his way and he's going to do it right. So now. Well, he can do personalized food, but when you're doing a Swedish restaurant, how Swedish is it? Is it an American version of Swedish food? Is it Marcus Samuelson's version? And when you, um, when you develop food for the other Aquavit, it's in Minneapolis, isn't it, where there's a, I gather, there's a large Swedish population in Minnesota. Do you have to do different kinds of food altogether? Well, that's, um, that's three questions in one there, so yeah. I think... Um, well, I, I tend to do multiple, uh, and you're supposed to say D. <laughs> Uh, I think food in general, it, it, it's, um, we're going away more and more from countries. We're going to, it's about the, very much the chef's personal story, you know, and where have the chefs traveled more so where he's from, more than the, when he, where he's from. So I'm a, I'm a chef from Sweden, as trained in, in France, living and cooking in America. So it becomes a globalization of food with a strong basic foundation of Scandinavian uh, food. And I, 
I divide that up to three building blocks, fish, fish and seafood, game, pickling and preserving techniques. And based on those three, I pick global ingredients. It could be a kimchi from Korea, it could be a ceviche from Peru, and it could be something from here from New York. So a Swede coming to Aquavit might say, hey, this isn't anything like Stockholm. Well, I don't think people eat like that. People can say, wow, this is really, really great. And, you know, if that, if we can bring a salmon, if we can bring an oyster, if we can bring themes, and there's other ways than food just to sell the concept. I mean, we have Scandinavian art, we have Orifosh Costa Boda, we have minimalistic design, uh, blonde wood. There's a, there's a pack, there's a settled package of building an environment. Now, Tony, you can't say any of these things because the, the whole brasserie concept works against the idea of a celebrity chef, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we're we're kind of chef. We pride ourselves on being chef-proof. And uh, <laughs> I mean, anybody can do it as long as he knows how the basic. Well, techniques. I like to think that uh, you know I have a happier kitchen, lower food cost, uh, you know, more business, and that it's, uh, you know I run the operation more smoothly. And I think uh, you know I bring some things to the table, particularly specials. Um, you know, having very happy memories of France and some rustic uh, French sort of roadside classics. Uh, you know, I think I have perhaps a better understanding or at least a good understanding of the potential power of doing, uh, you know, a, a humble pot au feu just right, you know, the way it, it should be. Um, but, you know, somebody, I'm asked a lot, what is, uh, what's the difference between bistro and brasserie? And, and really the, the, the shortest explanation of what a brasserie is, is it's really the French version of a diner. It's the same menu from brasserie to brasserie. You can be presumably sure that uh, the same items will, will, uh, will appear on, in almost every brasserie. So should you be called a chef? Jean-Francois Revel, the famous French mm -hmm. philosopher, once wrote, a chef is a man, and he did say man, by the way, capable of inventing what has not yet been eaten in the houses of others. Uh, I disagree with that completely. I think uh, a, a, chef, um, a chef can be um, a, a good chef uh, and you know, a, a, a great cook. Um, or even a bad chef and a terrific cook. You know, the, the best chefs, uh, of course, are both uh, good leaders, organizers, uh, as well as being spectacular cooks. I am not, uh, am I a great chef? Uh, absolutely not. Um, I am, however, a chef. I am certainly not, however, an artist. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a number of chefs who, who could reasonably make that claim. I am not one of them. But even on the brasserie level, you said that you prefer home cooking because there's no truffle oil in the mashed potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what, I think we play the game, uh, when I'm hanging around with other chefs, we play a game called electric chair a lot, where we you know, theorize, tomorrow you're getting the electric chair. You know, what are you going to eat tonight? And well, that was my last question. Uh, 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 but I was going to ask it of Timothy McVeigh, although <laughs> they may not be but able to answer. It'll be steak and potatoes, and he won't finish, you know, <laughs> believe me. Uh, but, but generally, the answer to that question when you, that you get from chefs is, is a very simple dish from their past, frequently either home cooking or something that reminds them of home cooking or earlier, you know, poorer times. And yet, now we have this whole other development. The, uh, the idea of calling this the cult of cooking, there is a cult thing going on, isn't there? Should we be surprised that so many Americans identify themselves as foodies nowadays? Um, I'm asking all of yeah. you. Yeah, no, but you can answer first. Um, I'm sure you've thought about this. 
Well, you know, foodies, I don't know. It's, it's uh, Marcus was saying earlier, we were talking, uh, American cuisine, American food culture is such a new development. You know, it's still in its infancy, and we really haven't, uh, uh, you know, developed a grand tradition, and we're, we're a long way from it. But I think we're in the early days of a sort of a boom mentality where everybody seems to be crazy about uh, food and all things to do with food. And there are a lot of chefs out there very enthusiastically uh, making both good food and making, you know, ridiculous uh, overreaching, uh, which is good. Chefs, young chefs should be uh, fearlessly trying new things, sometimes to their customers' detriment, but at least they're trying. You know, we're not back in the, you know, the, the Stone Age like we were in as recently as uh, the early 70s. Well, there was a time when, uh, some years back, when uh, the words Nouvelle Cuisine were considered dirty because it always meant a, uh, a raspberry vinaigrette uh, with uh, truffle oil and what, I don't know. Now there are only a couple of restaurants in New York do that. Things have, chefs have pulled back, haven't they? Just a little bit, Scott? Um, no, you have still a lot of chefs far reaching out there, um, which is good because I'm glad there is a cult because I think nowadays um, you have a problem with chains and the independent restaurateur has to really stand up and fight nowadays. If you go outside of New York, if you drive in through Virginia, all you see is strip malls and chains. And, and that's, that puts me at a big disadvantage mm -hmm. in the sense that one day, hopefully it will never come in my lifetime, uh, we don't have these chains ruling the world. You know? like, well, New York has resisted. Uh, Hooters, uh, which was big success everywhere else, uh, has been in serious trouble here. Maybe we don't like women in tight T-shirts, I don't know. Uh, Maybe, the, well, but but the, the, the Hard Rock Cafe and all yeah. those other places, they haven't done as well as they've done elsewhere. Well, that, that's a good thing. I think New Yorkers need substance, so uh, something with a solid base. I think there's a difference between um, where we are right now in terms of you, you talked about Nouvelle Cuisine. The advantage, the biggest advantage there is right now is that ethnic America, especially New York, is a great place for ethnic food. So where we don't have to draw everything from France and call it, have to do French food in order for it to be fine dining, which it was before. Now you can do a Japanese food, you can do Thai food, you can do so many different type of ethnic food. So we don't only have to do the novel thinking is still going on, but it might be a combination between California, Thailand, and Italy, mm -hmm. or it might be a combination between three other countries. India. Yeah, and, and that is a beauty. That's, that's that's fabulous, you know, because then you can draw the flavor from ethnic food, rather than just try to reproduce what 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 the fine dining experience is supposed to be in France. But but it seems to me that everything was pulled up by our growing sophistication in French food, maybe going all the way back to Le Pavillon and then Le Caravelle and then the success of James Beard and Julia Child. Maybe I'm simplifying too much, but Chinese food used to be really terrible stuff, and at least for us, for the Lofan, for the Chinese, they had a different menu, actually, in most of their restaurants. Now everybody has gotten much more sophisticated. Mexican food, we demand more. We demand more of Indian food. And maybe it's because our palates have been educated by better French food. No? Um, I think uh, th that's absolutely true. I think the, uh, the, the first wave of sushi restaurants uh, was a real sea change in, mm -hmm. in all of our lives. Mm -hmm. 
uh, suddenly the dining public uh, became aware of what fresh fish was and started to become uh, more willing to try different seafood that they never would have eaten before. And was so that they, good they, for you because you were getting yeah, better fish I, too? Because of the popularity of seafood, of, of uh, sushi, uh, I think all of us are now able to order items that we never would have been able to get access to. You know, monkfish liver is a, for, is a good example. Right. I remember um, when La Bernardin opened in 1986, they were one of the first restaurants in America that said we're going to serve a fish, a fatty fish like tuna and salmon, medium rare. And that was not heard of in this 1986. So, you know, that's a case where the dining public really drives uh, the market. And, you know, I, you're talking about, uh, you know, regional food, ethnic food. You know, clearly the, the I would rather eat in a restaurant with an overeager, uh, an overeager uh, independent uh, chef owner who's overusing, uh, you know, red curry paste and coconut milk than you know, give in to the forces of darkness who, who were the basically, you know, Houston's and Hard Rock and all those folks who, who, who want food to taste the same in Tulsa as it does in Maine or in, in, in Los Angeles. And, you know, that's what, you know, that's the enemy. Yeah. Some now we define that. It's good. <laughs> some, well some people have said that uh, this whole new foodie thing is part of a quest for more meaningful things in in the lives mostly of yuppies. Getting serious about food is like listening to great music or looking at great paintings. But then there's another school of thought that says that the growing obsession with haute cuisine is just middle-aged substitution for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> now, Tony, based on the stories you tell in Kitchen Confidential, sex, drugs, and rock and roll are a major part of the restaurant world, so maybe that's the, the real well, answer. I, I think that the more to the point, I think, why are chefs so popular all of a sudden? Why we're, we're the least suited people in the world to be thrust into the public eye, and yet everyone seems to, you know, want to give us television shows and stuff. Uh, I and he and he comes in fourth this. in uh, the most eligible bachelors in America. I have some pretty famous That's, um, affirmative action. <laughs> <laughs> I think sexually repressive times have a lot to do with it, though. Uh, I think uh, we're having sexually repressive times. Yeah, I mean, I oh, think that the, the, the days when uh, you know, largely due to STDs, I think suddenly the idea of having Keith Richards in your kitchen is uh, less attractive for apparently than having Emerald in your kitchen. <laughs> Emerald is less likely to, you know, steal your silver and penetrate you. So I think, uh, <laughs> except with a knife. Find some more adorable. <laughs> We'll get into showbiz later. <laughs> has, has, has Tony, you've, I'm sure you've read his book. Has he exaggerated? Or no. The, uh, <laughs> not at all. I mean, some things um, appear to be over the top, but I've seen most of it, 90%. Because you, you, well, you're... I, I just feel, I, I think it's a very honest book. I'd like, for the first chapter, I realized, like, Wow, where is this going to end? You know, it's very, very honest, and I—it's almost like w watching um, a British movie. You know, it's very, very honest, and I thought it was—it was great. Very—I I, want to run home and read it, which is like a good, good thing, you know. Well, if it's, it's so difficult, if it's so full of pressure, um, then why do you think so many people want to get into it? Why are the cooking schools busier than ever? That, that, you, you got me, because everyone that comes in, they tell me they want to be a chef. I said, do not do it right now. <laughs> You're going to work your ass off for at least a decade for no money. Um, 
Secondly, you're never going to see your spouse, so most likely you're going to have a very difficult time there. You're not going to get paid. It's just, it's a tough, tough business, one of the toughest. You have to do it if, if you really love it. And uh, once it gets in your blood, it's, it's a tough thing to get rid of. But there's a high turnover. People crack under the strain. You're likely to cut yourself, uh, to burn yourself. We saw Bobby Flay burn himself on television. And the, the chef at Lebec Fan, one of the most famous chefs in America, he cut off some of his fingers, didn't he, one day? He did. Yeah, he did. But that comes with a territory. It does? You know, if, if you don't like the heat, get out of the kitchen. So simple as that. And you said you never see your wife. You said uh, in your book that you're closer to your sous chef than you are to your wife. <laughs> in a perfect world, uh, I think the relationship between a chef and a sous chef is, uh, I often compare you know, Michael Corleone and Rocco in uh, Godfather 2, <laughs> that same sort of nonverbal thing. And there are certainly things I could tell my sous chef that I wouldn't tell my wife. Uh -huh. And I see a hell of a lot more of them. So. <laughs> Well, I, I was curious about that trend that we had a little while back for open kitchens, because judging from what you've written and what people have told me and what I've read in the books about uh, kitchens, everything from George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London to uh, David Bloom's Flash in the Pan, there's a whole bunch of wonderful books. Uh, you wouldn't want people to know what's going on. And I, was, I had the great honor, Alan Ducasse invited me to eat in his kitchen dining room which is this very special little place. Uh, I shouldn't admit to this because um, it makes me sound like I'm richer than I am, but he invited me. And, and I was shocked by all the shouting that went on in the kitchen. I mean, the, the, the guy who was running the kitchen, the Frenchman who was running the kitchen, screamed. I, I, I don't know enough French to know what he was saying, but I knew that I didn't want anybody to yell that at me. Uh, would you work in an open kitchen, Marcus? Yeah, I have an open kitchen in Minneapolis, and uh, you know, I, I just want to go back to a little bit about what you said about chef being a it's being a hard profession. Uh, it's I, I don't I don't believe in that because you work with your passion, you're passionate in something, and chefs mes maybe doesn't have to have great other hobbies. You know, we're really really passionate about our work, and uh, I I also think I'm from Europe, and in America people work a lot. People work hard here. You know, if I take my schedule, and I work a lot, always six days a week, if you take an equally successful lawyer, he works six days a week too, and he works very, very hard. So I think it's a perception that chefs works hard, one driven from the industry by itself and from the outside looking in. But, you know, any successful person in America, or any per works more, than the average European. We just work hard in, in this part of the world. But it is the perception of most people that in a French kitchen, people work harder than they do in the United States. And usually, the chef is something of a martinet. That's not true? Yeah, but it, you know, I, that's also part, or a little bit part of the past. I mean, I think there's different I think chefs now have, we have to, we, we just have to adapt to the reality of the people that's coming in, you know, a little bit. You know, which is completely, completely different when, than before. When, when I started in the kitchen, you know, I, I, you have to accept anything. There was not any reason to, you know, you could just not... Just did what you were told. Yeah. yeah. But there is a hierarchy. You have to start low and then work your way up. When you get to the top, then you can have a, you have a lot of free say and, and you can delegate a lot, but you're still going to work your butt off. No it's like what. the military. Yeah, it's very similar. French. Mm-hmm.
Not necessarily Americans. <laughs> American kitchens are much more touchy-feely, I guess. <laughs> well, but Tony, you, you, you said in your book that American workers are rather lazy and uh, disorganized. Is that why we see so many people from third world countries who really need the jobs working in restaurants, or is it just that they get paid less? Um, no, I, actually, I think, fortunately, over time, uh, a lot of the, the people who came uh, to this country, particularly from Mexico, rural Mexico and Ecuador, uh, to work as underpaid uh, illegal uh, labor, um, are now the, paid as well as their American counterparts, uh, largely because they come from cultures that are used to being responsible for other people from a very uh, early age, that understand the American dream better than Americans uh, seem to anymore. I mean, I'm sure we've all seen the, you know, the culinary grad come marching into the kitchen and the spotless new whites and the little knife roll up. Uh, you know, 10 minutes later, they're offering you suggestions on, uh, you know, entrees and specials, and they start, you know, they burst into tears. You said touchy-feely. Uh, you know, you, you would have uh, legal issues speaking to a lot of these folks the way that, that we were spoken to coming up. I agree. And, of course, that's one of the principal joys of the business, from my point of view, is that, that grand oral tradition of uh, verbally eviscerating people. So, <laughs> so, where, so where do the graduates of the French Culinary Institute and the, uh, the CIA go if, uh, if they're not going to get those jobs because they're so high maintenance? Are, th are they immediately opening up their own restaurants? I don't Half know. of them are out of the business within the first few years. Simple as that. Some of them, I'm sure, come to work for you. How, do, you, can you do you have a sense when somebody comes to you straight out of a school that this person will be okay, the other one, no way? Marcus? Well, I, I think um, it's, it's a really great time to be here right now because New York, Culinary Institute of America is the best cooking school in the world by far. I it is. That. So, and that's, that's something that you know, should belong to France, really, you know? And probably have for you know hundreds of years. What that's a, 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 an opportunity or a problem. And if the kid is, you know, take that as an opportunity, he or she is going to be fantastic. And if you get high, it's called hybris, I think is English too, right? If you get uh, hubris, hubris, yeah, exactly. Then there's going to be a problem. And um, I, I, I agree. When I read the book, I agree a lot with what was said in the book. Uh, but I also think there's a tons of committed, young, hardworking people, American people, you know, coming from all over. They're super, super committed, and they're ready to, to work their tail off. I'd, I'd agree with that. I always recommend, I'm, I went to CIA, and I, I was just up there, in fact, talking to students, and I recommend that when you get out of here, uh, you know, work as a dishwasher for six months. Um, and if you still like the restaurant business, can hack the pressure, uh, have the humility to, to do that job, uh, you can move on and, and become a cook. You know, if you, if you decide you can't take the pressure and it's all too much for you, well, you can quit and become a consultant. Well, does it matter where you go to, <laughs> does it matter whether you go to school or whether you work your way up? Some of the best chefs we've had in New York went to New York Technical School in Brooklyn. We had Patrick mm -hmm. Clark and mm -hmm. Michael Lamonico and Michael Romano. Uh, it's a much humbler kind of school, but they seem to have, to have done very well. Uh, in the end, is it the school or is it the person? I think it's the person. And I always say you, you have it here and you have it on the, on the palate. And when I say here, I mean seasoning. And it's all common sense for the most part. But the best chef uh, I've worked for, my first chef, Bob Kincaid, best manager also, um, 
He never went to school. He studied UMass for psychology. And maybe that's why he's a great chef, because he can manipulate the hell out of the whole staff. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and now he's in Washington, where you can do that even more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's found his niche. Now, you, um, I, I assume, are really aided by the growing interest in wine in America. Veritas uh, has uh, gotten a lot of attention because of its incredible wine list. But do you think that Americans are more sophisticated about wine now, or do they still just come in and ask for a Merlot or a Chardonnay, only, in your case, with a, a wider range of choice? Well, I think Americans have, have come a long way. Um, but still, um, they still have a, a light years to go. I mean, to come in and drink Merlot or California Cab is, is a California Chardonnay. Granted, they're good, but there's so many better wines you could have out there. And it takes, it's a learning process. It takes, a, you know, 10 years before you really, until you have a great white burgundy or a great Riesling from like Clos St. Yun, mm -hmm. then you really say, wow, this is, this is wine. This is, has more components than two, which California, usually that's what I get, fruit and oak, and it takes a long time. Well, you, as a chef, do you get involved in thinking about the wine list? Oh, yes. I mean, the menu has to be very well thought out to, um, to enhance the wine, not really to uh, fight it. In, in the case of Swedish food, uh, there most wines are imported anyway. What do people well, drink in Sweden? Aquavit? Well, I think from coming Beer? from a non-wine producing country, uh, you have to sort of go to the more classical. You, you, th you look at France, but we also look at California, but also the new, the new world. You know, we look at New Zealand, Australia, and also a lot of Alsace, because that's the food that works, that's the wines that work with our food. Um, I, I learned most of my wine knowledge here, uh, and, and I had opportunity to work with a great master some here, was Roger de Gorn from uh, Chanterelle to come in and really teach my staff and teach myself. And I'm, you know, I'm not as far as, as, as Scott, but, you know, I'm constantly, I look forward to do that journey and really be, become, because he's right, you have to know what to look for, and then you can start to enjoy it. And it's also your personal opinion. Of course, no two people Personal agree, taste. even two <laughs> wine experts agree on the same wine. But you mentioned Alsatian wines, which go with everything, mm -hmm. and yet rarely are they well represented in restaurants, uh, although they, they are at your place. But you, Tony, are, are not... I'm not a wine You're guy. not a wine drinker. I, 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 I drink wine, and, uh, but I'm, I'm just I'm not really knowledgeable in it. If I have a question, I generally call Scott. Now, in France, it really, it's very easy for a brasserie. They, they have a, a couple of war wines that uh, they, they buy by the case at the winery. Yeah, I, mean, Chinon, uh, you know, so I remember as a kid uh, in, in the southwest of France, we'd go summers. Uh, I remember going with my uncle with the, you know, the empties well, you know, off to the vintner and refilling from the barrel. So you know, I have very uh, you know, a pedestrian uh, taste as, uh, in wine as, as a young man, as a kid, and uh, you know, I'm still learning. Conventional wisdom has it that that's where the restaurants make the money, on the wine that you don't make much money on the food because ingredients are so high. Is that true? Well, restaurants in general don't make a lot of money. Um, you only, if you're, if you're good at what you're doing, you can do anywhere from eight to like 15%. And if you're McDonald's, you can, I think, make about 24%. 
McDonald's that, is making a higher profit on their, their foods than... Sure, they got it down to a science. But uh, for an independent operator, uh, it's, it's not a business where you want to go in to make money. Uh, it's like the wine business, you know, you have to start with a lot just to make a little. So it's, uh, it's, it's not really the greatest business. You screwed up the joke. The, the joke is uh, if you want to make some money in the wine business, you know, a little money, yeah. you start off with a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but there are also, it's not just wine that supposedly, or the alcohol that seems to keep a restaurant going. I, I'm told that you have to play games with ingredients, like you, the chicken, you, you charge a high, higher markup because you can't charge as much for the red snapper as a normal markup. Would, would warrant. Is, is that well, you, the you're way not, you work You're it? not gouging them on the chicken, uh, but you're certainly not going to give them chicken as cheaply as you might be able to because you're well aware of the fact that you are often a good restaurant anyway. You're, it's not necessarily a loss leader, uh, the Red Snapper, but you're not going to be able to hit the standard formula. You know, often chefs will triple what they paid for a particular item, uh, and that's what they'll charge you know, three times uh, what it costs them to put on the plate. Uh, you can't do that with some items because the price will just be unacceptably high for the customer. Uh, so fortunately, however, for every, uh, you know, 38-ounce Cote de Boeuf that I serve at a 50% food cost, I serve a hell of a lot of steak frites, which has, is at a 19% food cost, and I hope to, to catch up. So in that sense, you're counting on your chicken and, you know, maybe pasta to make up a little lost ground for the, for the foie gras that you're basically giving away. I, mean, I guess that applies to everybody. That applies business. to everybody, yeah. But what, now uh, we have uh, a concern about the economy again. There, in the early 90s, when the economy was sluggish, we started seeing a lot of restaurants opening up that promised, promised real uh, bargains like JoJo's, Boulay Bakery later. Uh, the, JoJo's out of business. Boulay Bakery now charges as much as any other restaurant in New York, maybe more than some. Uh, so how do you deal with uh, resistance when right now, at least according to the newspapers, we're going to go into a downturn in the economy? Do you have to concern yourself with that? Well, it goes back, I think it's go back to um, value of money and really um, exceeding, I think, you can eat still cheap in New York. I mean, you can still go to a great restaurant and have $20 three-course menu. I mean, we have, at our restaurant, for example, we have all year round, we have the, in the cafe, 365 days, three courses lunch, $20. Yeah, lunch. We keep lunch. We keep that. I'm on the air day. from noon to two. <sighs> you, but I, I think there are, there are great, the, uh, you know, what you want to, you, you go and buy, I, I always think about it, you go and buy, like, most expensive pair of Nike sneakers for 200 and 200 bucks, or, or, you know, and you, and, and the fine dining, that's something that, most likely a team of 100 people, it hmm. takes an effort about, from anything from 60 to, at least 60 to 100 people to put that together. And it costs about the same amount of money. So I think it's all where you want to, where, where you want to put your energy and your passion and your time and your money to. But there was a, there was an article in the Times not so long ago about sticker shock on appetizers. You know, nowadays it's not surprising to see an appetizer, a menu going from twelve to twenty dollars and sometimes more. Uh, that that used to be the range for entrees. Uh, is there a resistance to people? 
Or, do, or is it assumed that if they're going to Veritas, if they're going to Aquavit, that they know that they're going to pay a certain amount of money? Well, the, the, we have a $68 prefix, and you can eat a la carte at the bar. And the uh, apps go from uh, 8 to 18 for foie gras. But uh, everything is, uh, comes in cycles. I was here in 86, and I saw what happened to New York. I saw Aurora close, and I saw a lot of great places go down the tubes. And uh, now, you know, it's you go into recessions, and everything comes in cycles. As long as you give value mm. for the price, if you're giving value um, and you're delivering the goods, people are going to pay for it, no matter what. Whether in, even if we go into depression, people will still go out. They still go to Broadway shows because that's the only only thing they're going to have to make them happy, and they're going to pay for it. For the producers more than ever. <laughs> I, I think uh, you know is the value there? Meaning, uh, am I getting a not? Am I getting a lot of food for cheap? But am I getting a good plate of food? I think where you run into trouble, and and I think you can charge a lot of money for very good food. I think uh, where where I start to resist is, uh, you know, I'm paying through the nose for a meal, and what other ingredients seem to be part of that price. Uh, structure, meaning, you know, I don't really want to see uh, designer steak knives brought to my table or, uh, you know, Mont Blanc pens, you know, spare me that, okay? Just give me good food, <laughs> I'll pay for it, but save me the, the nonsense. And he, and uh, Ducasse did learn his lesson yes, there, everybody ridiculed him. But it's interesting that uh, bistros are now getting fancier, uh, about the czar, uh, places like that, they're as expensive as a lot of other restaurants around town. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's harder to distinguish between the restaurants that are going to be less expensive and the ones that are going to be more expensive. You know, once, uh, you know, once one restaurant breaks ground, a lot of people, of course, will jump on and say, hey, look, you know, they're getting uh, you know, $38 for steak free. To, I'm sure you'll see the, the price of steak free creeping up because we can. You know, it's, uh, it's just that simple. I th but I think the people who, who stay in the business year after year after year and, and hold on to their clientele, uh, you know, don't gouge them when, when, when able, um, and, and they hold on to their clientele. Uh, you mentioned earlier that now you can get all sorts of fish you couldn't get before. Are you able to get most of the ingredients you need for you, let's say, Marcus, to do Swedish food in the United States, or do you still have to import stuff like lingonberries? Uh, I import less and less. Um, we, right now, it's really just down to some berries, a spirit vinegar, and, and herring. Those are the only things I really import now. I mean, you can get as great salmon here as you can get in Norway. You can get, in America it's really, I think there's more stuff getting imported from the U, uh, stuff going from the US to Sweden versus, you know, the other way around. I, I, I can't really think about a better place really to cook than in, in, in America right now. One French chef said that he is m upset about laws in France that prevent him from bringing some of the best American things like soft-shell crabs into France, mm -hmm. uh, halibut, beef from Arizona. Of course, we also don't, we're not allowing all sorts of stuff to come in here, especially cheeses. Um, it, does that frustrate you? It's annoying. I mean, but I guess governments have to play uh, these kind of games with each other. Uh, with um, this year, with 1,000% thousand percent 
attacks on uh, on Parmesan Reggiano and things like that a because thousand? it's a luxury. Well, maybe a hundred doubled. They doubled the price uh, just because of um, countries' spite. spite. Yeah, they're 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 because of the banana war. If I yeah, they're fighting over that. So. I mean, it hurts us in the long run, the consumer. There is one thing that I would love to bring here. It's pata negra, real pata negra from Spain. Um, you know, there's a thousand copies out there, but it's, uh, I haven't tasted the real thing here in America. Not yet. Well, what about cheeses? Suddenly we have this cheese explosion. Uh, I, uh, until about two weeks ago, Americans didn't like cheese and soup, right? I'm, I'm frightened by this whole uh, movement. Uh, you know, we, we're hearing talk of... Uh, aging cheeses more before uh, allowing them to, to be released and uh, you know this whole fear of unpasteurized cheese uh, that, that, that scares me because things are just getting interesting in the cheese world as you say there's uh, there are a lot more available the restaurants are offering full cheese services uh, and people seem to be going for it artisanal um, now uh, you walk yeah. into the place and you're overwhelmed by the smell of cheese and it's kind of wonderful yeah, so at the same time to have people honestly saying that, well, you know, you should, what, age cheese for three weeks, four weeks, what are they talking about before the, you, you let it out? I mean, we'll all be eating cheese whiz in another, uh, <laughs> you let these people have their way. I can't wait. Uh, do, but, do, you know, you, you still have special advantages over the rest of us because restaurants have suppliers who make things only for restaurants you can pay top dollar for things that we can't get at home. Isn't that true? In, in, in France, I would assume that most people are getting at the market pretty much the same stuff they get at the restaurants. Not I, true? I, I think cooking is dividing in a couple of different worlds. And I think one is produce-driven and one is uh, creative-driven. There's very rarely that I call my purveyor for a special, special, special item. I, People would be surprised how basic the stuff I, I order and what comes, what makes it interesting maybe is how I structure it and how I pair it. And so that's, that, that's really it. You know, I, I've had my purveyors. That you don't go to those special farmers in the Midwest? Yeah, they, I, I, I like the microgreens and I, I work with, I, I work with the, the farms upstate and, and I, of course, but it's not, it's more creative-driven than produce-driven produce for me, I, I think. But I think consumers can still get great product. I mean, we use a lot of the same stuff uh, from Union Square, mm -hmm. the market there, and you can get squab and, and, and the organic eggs and basically the same product. The only thing that's difficult is finding um, specialty fish for a consumer to walk in and buy it. But you have Belducci's, you have Citarella, and you can, you can basically get the same product. Let's talk a minute about the, uh, the, the whole idea of celebrity chef because it means different things to different people. It can mean people at this, in this panel. It can mean Emerald Legacy. It can mean, uh, in Japan, it can mean anybody who appears on Iron Chef. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, if we ever were worried about the United States being weird as far as making food into show business, all you have to do is watch Iron Chef. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know if any other country. <laughs> Can you imagine Paul Bocuse on French television whipping out a, a meal for uh, two actors and an astrologer? 
These days, anything is possible. Uh, there will be an American Iron Chef show, by the way, with host William Shatner coming. <laughs> uh, this is not a joke. Oh God! <laughs> really? Well, he won't be doing the cooking. But I hope not. <laughs> Still, would you participate in something like that? Um, I love watching the show. I don't fully understand it, but I, I really enjoy it. Uh, no, I, I, I wouldn't. I, you know, after the flay incident, I, I think uh, I, I will let others do that. <laughs> he he embarrassed himself on Japanese television. Well, you know, I'm, I, when you're under pressure like that, uh, I, I imagine you are more likely to cut yourself, electrocute yourself, and leap onto a cutting mm. board all in one show. <laughs> uh, you know, I might be moved to similar... Uh, you know, similar uh, ill-advised moves under pressure. Well, people have been very tough on Emeril Lagasse, but uh, he is working very fast, and maybe he's encouraging people to think about expanding their their cooking ambitions, even if Amanda Hesser went after him in the New York Times and said that nothing, not one of those recipes tasted any good. I, I think it's really easy. Uh, I mean, I certainly am going to get a, done a lot of, had a lot of fun beating up on uh, Emeril. Um, Everybody and, does, and the show and doing is great. excruciating, but uh, <laughs> but all all of the, the TV chefs, uh, however annoying they might be, I think uh, it, it are a force for good in the long run. I think it's a positive right. thing. Anything that gets people to interested and you know more more uh, eager to try new things, I, I think that's a, a good thing. And you know certainly you know better chefs than than hockey players, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> But you've never been, neither of you have been on television, have you? I mean, other than on those uh, on special visits to, to shows on the TV Food Network. Have you had your own show, Marcus? No, I haven't. I have my own. Swedish Food Made Easy? Well, I, I do a 40, I'm working right now on a 40-piece uh, series about the food in Sweden. We've gone from New York to Ethiopia to Sweden doing different things. But I think you can... You can, you, there's a, is a unique time where you, as a chef, can really pick and choose what would you like. It's different layers. Cooking is just, chefing is just not one guy that stands in the kitchen yelling and scream. You can be, you know, you can be so many different things, and it's up to the chef and up to that person to decide what he or she is committed to. Mm -hmm. You know, just like you have actors on different uh, levels on layers and layers and, and, and lawyers the same thing you know it's just that it's new to us to the to the to the masses but you know as long as you're committed you do something good well what do you think of yourself as uh, uh do you you're not ethiopian you're not swedish you're not american or do you, do you have you do you now think of yourself as I don't so mean what that in a bad way. Am I, do I deserve to be in this country? Is that the no, question? I didn't mean that at all. <laughs> well, if you want to ask that. No, uh, do you think of yourself now as an American chef? Do you think what you do is an American cuisine? Um, I, I think one of the great things with living in America, it allows you to be so many different things. You, you know, it's, America allowed me to find out stuff about myself about Ethiopia, which Sweden could never do. In Sweden, your goal is to be normal and be Swedish. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the goal. And you, you, and you standard of living and having a great life in Sweden is fantastic. But America really allows you to be, you know, all these different religious nationalities, and you can, and then you can go in and out of it as much as you want. And I'm having a great time. I'm, tr I, I. 
extremely grateful for my experience. I pick, I have this great being raised in Sweden and being very uh, learning, you know, hard work ethic, and, and it's, it's great now to learn stuff about Ethiopia and, and the, the food culture there, and it's fantastic to be able to pick the good stuff of America, what it gives you. So, yeah, I'm American, <laughs> I guess, you know. How would you describe your, your food, Scott? Is it uh, an American cuisine? It's well, French-based. It's, uh, yeah, I'm a Francophile uh, at heart. Um, I consider myself more European in philosophy about food and why. Well, how does that differ? Well, I think Americans don't really, uh, maybe now they're just starting to respect food. I think they use it more as a uh, fuel source to get them through the day. Um, Amer Americans, they, I don't think they eat well at all. They snack, they eat junk food. Um, overly neurotic about food, natural food, where if you just roast a chicken with a little butter and things, it's much better. Just don't eat it with potatoes. I mean, food combining is um, really key to living healthy. And every, uh, Amer Americans in general, I just see, they want to fix everything fast. They take these fat pills and they're going to think they're going to lose the weight. It, it all comes down to common sense. and. And that's why I think uh, I'm much more European-based uh, in philosophy about food than, uh, than Americans. Do you think we also like portions that are too large? I remember somebody telling me that he used to go to Luna's all the time. He said, the food isn't good, but they give huge portions. And I asked, why would you want to eat a lot of bad food? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think Americans, they like to indulge and, you know, I do too. I like I like a nice steak and and things like that. But um, it's I think you should they they really have to worry about quality first and then. Uh, but um, Americans want everything quick, fast, you know. And I think they lose out when it comes to to natural food, you know. I, th I think we're definitely a more is better culture, unfortunately. And uh, you know, Flintstone sized portions are always going to be popular. Um, and, and certainly during the early days of Nouvelle Cuisine, I remember the whole less is more concept was, was a really tough sell. Well, I big mean, plates. Just meant a bigger plate. Yeah. Right? <laughs> a little, one slice kiwi and you know, a little you know, squab breast. Um, there, there should be a middle ground. And I, and I, I think once uh, American, uh, America's priorities are more uh, using what's good in a particular region to maximum effect, which is something, you know, Francis cuisine grew up around grim necessity and poverty. I mean, they had to make something good out of all those hooves and snouts and shoulders and things. And Americans are so prissy about things. Uh, I remember Larry Forgione telling me that uh, he put sweetbreads onto a dish that he had with veal chops. The veal chops had done very well. Immediately, the sales went down 20%. This was for an American restaurant. I imagine sweetbreads do well in a French-style restaurant, but, but, it, but we, we don't eat all sorts of things. What went wrong, country. though? I've been looking at turn-of-the-century menus, and they were just they had whole courses of awful and, and organ meat, and uh, we were fearless back then. I think prosperity and, and uh, nobody wants to, to eat hearts anymore. Easy is, is, is what, what hurt us. I, I think there's a couple of things here that is a little bit... When, when I travel around the world, I, there's one common thing in, my, in, in the third world is about eating is that we sort of miss here is that it's a social event. 
and it, we like, is that good? Is that good? Like in in Ethiopia or in or in Thailand, that is not the question. The food is flavorful, and the whole there's nobody. There's not a child. There's not an older person eating by themselves. So that is, I think it's. We talked about that a little bit. You just came back from your traveling, and it's. Uh, I think that is more important to figure out uh, the whole social event around eating. Most people eat the same dish. They, they bring out a big dish, mm -hmm. and then and everybody eat, gets a portion, and, and you eat and with then you your get hands. another dish. And so it becomes very intimate and becomes very social. And that is, I think, is, is, is more important than, you know, than, than we eat weird. I think also another thing with Americans, I think they like stuff, like if a person doesn't eat sweet bread in America, but he or she will go to France and eat Sweetbread, Redevoe, because it sounds interesting. They call Redevoe, and they didn't know yeah. sweetbreads. <laughs> but so it's it's a, about a perception, and if I mean you know, so there is the whole dining. I think it's dangerous to overanalyze the whole how we eat because it's so it's it's just really weird. But you, you have know? to think about <laughs> those is, things as really chefs really because you can't put certain things on menus, right? Well, you just know if you put something on, like if I put something on because I like it. Um, say sweetbread ravioli, which I had on my menu. It took a while, but to finally, to people catch on. But a lot of times, you know that's, that one is just not gonna sell. If you put lamb's tongue on the menu, you know, you just know that you give it a try. If it doesn't sell for a couple of weeks, then you basically, if, if your waiters can't sell it, uh, then it's gone. And it's tough, it's a tough thing. It's a shame that, you know, you wanna do it, you wanna sell it, but it just doesn't fly. What about the other side of that? You have been making the same thing for 10 years now, and you want to take off the menu, and, uh, and William Grimes is complaining that you've been keeping it on the menu, and then, forgive me for reminding you about William Grimes, I know the review comes out tomorrow. Uh, but, the, but your customers all say, but that's my favorite dish, I come into your restaurant for that. How, well, do, you, how do you fight that? I, I, in New York, I, I, in Minneapolis, I have to think completely different. But in New York, I don't think about, I, you know, you respect the customer, you put them in the highest, you absolutely, you truly respect them, but they come to see you, and you sort of, like, you build a relationship with them, and I think it's a trust level. I, I'm gonna put veal brain, I'm gonna put sea urchin, I'm gonna put sorbets with this, and there's gonna be enough people that appreciate that. I, I, I can't, at this point in my life, I don't want to go, I, mean, I will probably eventually have to, do, I don't know. Anyway, I, I like. You're 30 years old at this point no, in your life. No, but I really want to, I really want to, I don't want to go back, I really want to uh, push forward. And sometimes you just have to say, you know what, I've been cooking that dish for a year. Yeah. Please, try this, yeah. and if you don't like it as much, let me know, and then we'll, we'll, I'll make it for you here and there, but you have to change things. But I get the feeling that most chefs don't cook for the customers anyway. They cook for themselves and for their peers. Isn't that true? That's true for me. I, I think particularly, uh, you know, under fire in the middle of the shift, uh, the customer, uh, how, I mean, you're, you're doing the best you can. You, you are cooking for the customers, they're, they're, but they're just not a, in a, in immediate, immediately uh, in mind. I mean, they're an they become an abstraction. And what keeps you going through a really busy shift, um, and, and, and in fact, through life, um, is uh, your team, who you're working with, and, and the, you know, the sense of, of that we're, we're all of us together doing something uh, good or, or doing something well. 
uh, together in the kitchen. Is that why chefs get so upset when people want things well done, when they have this beautiful piece of meat and they know that they're destroying it? It, it hurts. I don't get upset anymore. Great. Uh, Good for yeah. you. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Come a long way. Fire. That's great. That's really great. You, you don't still get upset, anymore, Mark. I don't <laughs> scream anymore. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's still, if that's the way he wants it, that's the way they get it. But um, it I'm doesn't upset tomorrow me anymore. for a nice piece of tuna at your place. <laughs> <laughs> Burn it, please. Uh, here are some questions that have been sent up from this wonderful audience. Which American cities outside of New York are producing some of the best regional cooking? San Francisco. San Francisco, I think. In Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. In Miami, probably, for Caribbean-style cuisine. Yeah. You didn't say New Orleans. Um, I mean, not that I think you should, but why do you think that it has such a great reputation? For me? New, uh, New Orleans. New Orleans. I, one of my favorite chefs in America cooks there. You know, Leah Chase, she has this wonderful restaurant, wonderful chef. To be honest, I've never been to New Orleans, so that's why I didn't mention it. <laughs> neither. <laughs> and neither have I, okay. Uh, uh, this one asks a question I think you answered, Marcus. Do you have an interest in Ethiopian cooking now? And you've, I think you've said I yes. You're all, all African cooking, I think. We've, we've, uh, we've tried, we deeply, you know, we tried Asian cooking and we love it. We've we gone on to South American cooking and we love it. I think one of the untapped markets is Africa, not just so just Morocco, but really the deep Africa. And I think uh, if one, there is a great mystique about Africa and it's been colonized every country except Ethiopia. So I think there, if there's any part of the world where it can be a natural fusion cooking, Think about the natural fusion cooking in South Africa, where you have Chinese, Indian, Dutch, African, and the black, uh, black South African. It, it could be a really, really wonderful food coming out of that part of the world. And it's just natural for us to moving forward. You know, chefs are always into trying new things. And I'm going to go in um, December, I'm going to go to South Africa, and I'm just going to study. And always, in January, I'm going. Or just to, to study and learn more about African culture. There have been Ethiopian restaurants in New York, but uh, often when there's a cuisine that's barely represented in New York, we get the worst food. You know, for a long time, Chinese food was chow mein and chop suey. Mexican food was uh, stuff that had a lot of chilies in it because you were covering up bad ingredients. And Indian food has only recently started being more interesting here. Uh, do you ever think about authenticity when you're eating uh, some other country's cuisine? Yeah, one has, in order to, to understand that, I think one has to understand what, what food means in that country. In Ethiopian cooking, for example, no one would ever ex experiment. Why would they? Food is necessary for one thing, and you eat around your family. So it's, this is not about an experiment. Our world evolves around that, but not maybe necessarily a grandmother in India doesn't think about experiment with Western culture. So therefore, it becomes the same meals cooked really, really well. It's our job to take their ethnic flavors and make them interesting. No, I don't think necessarily vice versa. They think it's weird. Why are we doing all these different things? Well, uh, in, many people from Spain complain that, there's, that we really don't have real Spanish food in New York. We only have variants. You, you had a restaurant called Soleil, didn't you? Wasn't that kind of? Well, it was Mediterranean. It, was, it wasn't mine either, I was just a chef there. And that, that, 
<laughs> now that is a problem that people have often in this business. They're hard to fit in with somebody else. In fact, there's a concept and then a chef, chef is hired or in the case of Allison and Dominic, uh, you were hired after another chef left and you were kind of asked. And, I bo mean, and, both, and both, all chefs weren't the owner there. It's a tough thing. Yeah. Uh, that's why chef-driven restaurants have the the personal touch, uh, the personality of the chef. Um, Otherwise, you've got to conform to what the restaurant's established itself. The in. owner, whoever that may be. An individual chef can can have a take on a classic or regional or authentic uh, cuisine and and spin it out as far as they can get away with it and make something marvelous. Uh, but you know, is there anything worse than bogus brasserie or uh, you know bogus Mexican? Is is you know yeah. horrible. Um, you know, southwestern or Mexican influenced food, where you've got a, a creative person uh, in, involved. You know that that can be good, but if it presents itself as, you know, traditional Mexican dishes done all all wrong, uh, you know, owned by a French guy. Get, yeah, right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Usually, somebody from the Dominican Republic who once met a Mexican. Um, <laughs> that happened in New York in a restaurant that Mimi Sheridan gave two stars to once. Uh, well, anyway, that's another matter. Um, I know the answer to this because you've kind of alluded to it. Are you aware of the Slow Food Organization? Yes. Yeah. And most chefs in New York love this idea, don't they? That's what you were yeah. talking about earlier, buying seasonal foods and, and not flying everything in from Peru in the, you know, all summer stuff in, from Peru on the, in the wintertime. Well, it's getting back to the basics. Um, but, you, you know, you would think people would, people would already know that, but... It, uh, it gets lost a lot of times because in the winter on the Upper East Side, every Italian restaurant is still serving those tomatoes. Not, not the ones shipped up from Florida, the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> but they're also serving sun-dried tomatoes in the summertime, and I always thought that sun-dried tomatoes were for the winter. Right. Now, the, the winter is good for you, Marcus, because Sweden uh, is all rutabagas mm -hmm. and stuff like that, mm -hmm. turnips, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Your problem is the summertime, isn't it? No, I think, um, again, I, I work with my building blocks. I work, these three building blocks I feel are Sweden, Swedish, and then I have three other blocks that is aesthetic, texture, and then really focusing on how to bring the highest flavor into those. So that, that is 12 months. I mean, that is, keeps me going all year. I was just teasing you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Good try. Um, what is, here's a person who filled out two cards. I'm going to have to pick and choose. What is the next it food and how do it foods affect your cooking? Well, clearly it, African food is going to be the next it food. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing that sounded <laughs> We uh, have it from Marcus. <laughs> Uh, but but that does happen, doesn't it? Suddenly uh, somebody opens up a place that everybody gets excited about and, and the next thing you know we, we have lemongrass all over the place for a while. I, I, and I think in a, in a deep, for something not to be a trend, I think it really goes back, and especially in America, I think when Americans started trading with a country, it started to eat its food. I mean, before there was no Toyotas here, I'm sure there was not too many sushi restaurants. And before there was a heavy trading with Korea, there was probably not too many people walking around eating, thinking about kimchi. Mm -hmm. So I think it has to be heavy 
have, America has to have a business with its country, or it can be like India or China, where it's just a huge population taking, you know, coming, you know, coming over here. That's what happened with Chinese food. Eventually, immigration loosened up and people came here and they didn't want to eat that stuff because they didn't Mm -hmm. know it from back home. Right, but the next it thing is probably not going to really affect Tony because he's going to stick with what he's doing at Leal and it's really not going to affect me either. Mm -hmm. Uh, This person asked, do any of you seriously consider Las Vegas to be the next dining capital because it's... That's no, there's no joke. Uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of hot restaurants and big chefs moving out there. A lot of hot restaurants, but you know what? There's, there's no chefs of their own thing out there except one, Masa. Or what is it? Masa, the chef. Julian Serrano. Is Serrano. it Masa? Yeah, Julian, Julian Serrano. Picasso, but it's Masa. It's called Picasso, yeah. but Julian Serrano left Masa's in San Francisco. So he's the only chef that is on premise all the time. Everybody else has is kind of like a satellite restaurant? Exactly. And I don't think you really can take Vegas too serious. Uh-huh. <laughs> Being very diplomatic tonight. Serial <laughs> <laughs> Mancioni says that his Italian chef in Las Vegas is the best Italian chef in America. I haven't eaten there. You haven't eaten there. Uh, Tony, like the uh, magician who told the secrets of the tried and true tricks on TV, did you have any reservations about revealing the inner workings of your business? I wrote the book as an entertainment for uh, my fellow chefs and, and cooks. I think anyone who's dunked French fries for two weeks in, in a mediocre restaurant anywhere has seen all of this stuff and knew it already. Uh, so I don't know that I really ripped the lid off anything. All of the revelations, the fact that your busboy might be recycling unmolested bread seemed to horrify people more. You know, big deal. Yeah. Was, most French chefs would, would kill you if you didn't reuse bread. I mean, it would be unthinkable. So, mean in uh, the best restaurants in France? You know, you don't waste stuff. Uh, bread costs money. Um, so, you know, I don't know how much of I, I... I think what alarmed people was that they don't maybe like to think of chefs, you know, talking about them the way that they do <laughs> and looking at the civilian public. And, sometimes yeah. and hating them if they're vegetarians. <laughs> well, I don't feel too bad about that. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Bryan, I, I loved Indigo and miss it. Would you consider opening another casual restaurant like it? Without a doubt. Um, probably a try, I've been thinking about something in a year from now. But uh, the leases in Manhattan are just out of control. I've got to find the right lease. This is a problem for restaurants in general, uh, isn't it? You open up a restaurant because the, the 10 restaurants that preceded you on the location all failed and you can get the place real cheap. You open up a successful place. And then after the lease is up, the landlord wants to triple your rent. That's correct. And, yeah. and, and the lease, I think, is the most important factor in opening a restaurant. <laughs> that makes or breaks a restaurant because that's a fixed cost that will never change. And you can always change your labor cost. You can cut it down. You can, you can change your food cost. You can do a lot of things. But if you're paying too much for your lease, you, you're going to go down. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that get into the restaurant business they they have grandiose ideas and they think that every day is going to be busy and we're not we're not going to have any bad weeks but you're going to have bad weeks it's going to be cold in february and it's yeah. going to be 10 degrees for like two weeks and no one's coming into your restaurant for those two weeks and you're going to have a snowstorm and next thing you know you're behind and and that's what happens well aquavit probably i think it owns the building doesn't it and uh, no, i would like for us to own the building but this is not <laughs> Because uh, you're in a high-rent district. You're yeah, across the street from the Museum of Modern Art. Yes. And, um, 
it, it's, it's a constant struggle. When you meet your landlord, I am constantly, I'm not embarrassed by always telling him, oh, business is down, business is down, <laughs> oh, it's so horrible, it's so horrible. And he's, every time he sees me, ah, so young, good morning, America, so young. <laughs> so it's this battle back and forth. And, you know, I always tell him, this, it's a basement on 54th Street. Do not tell me that that uh, is a prime space. And he's like... And you built the waterfall. Yes. And, and all the tenants are paying based on aqua. So we always have this battle. But, um, and then he gives me this, we want to raise the rent 26%. You know, you, you, it's just ridiculous. Well, we had Tribeca where nobody, uh, they went because the, the rents were dirt cheap. Now, uh, rents are very high. The two of you are uh, in an area that nobody wanted to have restaurants in. I remember when Karen Hubert suffered because it wasn't a destination area. Now, everybody is going to that mm -hmm. area. Uh, so are, are you, you worried about that too? You're across from Gramercy Tavern. I'd imagine your landlord is salivating at the thought of your lease going up. Well, he's, he's dying because uh, we got that, we, the reason why we went into it was the lease was right. And uh, he still has to wait another five years, I believe. So every day that goes by, he's like licking his chops, right, <laughs> waiting to, you know, hit us with the increase. But who knows, by then we'll move on. I'm not sure. I, mean, I don't know when our lease comes up, but I mean, we went in because uh, there was nothing in the neighborhood and uh, there was a, a, Indian, a terrible Indian restaurant across the street from where the owners were working died and no one else wanted it and they went in and, and had the vision to, to open up a place and, uh, you know, and you're full from around Layal and other restaurants uh, in, the, in the neighborhood, a, a neighborhood kind of grew up and, and a, a restaurant area and now our restaurant neighborhood is colliding with uh, your restaurant neighborhood and uh, Flatiron and it's uh, in the meat district it seems like there'll be restaurants uh, everywhere they're sprouting up like mushrooms now um, this question uh, I, I I'm scared to ask where do you like to eat in New York City on your nights off and you can't mention the restaurants of these other people here Scott let's see that's and do you go, go out to eat a lot? Yeah, I do. Uh, usually I go out in the week, like I sneak out at like 10 o'clock and go to different restaurants. Um, I go to Lupa a lot. My, uh, my old, old sous chef is a chef there. So, you know, it's an inn and I know him well. So either there or, uh, let's say Lupa. It depends on, you know, what you want to do. Because if you have, you want to show New York. I mean, it really depends on what type of mood, mood you're in. But I love ethnic restaurant. Any love to try like Korean on Thirty Second Street and just try different stuff because I think a chef wants to go as far away from his, his or her cuisine. That's why I think so many chefs love sushi, for example, because it's completely mm -hmm. the opposite. Or why chef could be you know junk junk food fanatics because it's completely relaxing and completely. You know, but I I really like. Uh, trying ethnic food, and even if I don't like it, just sitting there trying to understand the bitter flavor or what it is not, what I'm supposed to understand. And that, that for me, I still I enjoy that. I really love that. Well, Tony, uh, you right here recently ate Cobra in, where is it, in Asia? Uh, Vietnam. Vietnam, yeah. so uh, no, they're not I'm scared to ask meal. you where you go to eat. No, I, Marcus has me pegged exactly. I, you know, I either want late night uh, sushi, uh, I like sushi samba late. I like sitting at the sushi bar and washing a raw fish down with mm -hmm. caipirinhas. Uh, 
or on the other hand, you know, papaya king. Uh, something. And, and none of you, what about the, the really, the great, great restaurants, whether they're here or in France? Do you look forward to going to them or do you think that it's just too much food? And I love going to great restaurants. You love it? Yeah, good. it's real inspiration. Uh, I just came, I went to Spain this year and France and Paris and I always go to a few great restaurants and I love it. It's, uh, you always learn something. You, you definitely owe it to yourself and, you, and your staff have to come and see it also because you can't build a great concept without knowing what it is eating like at Alain Ducasse in Paris or Pierre Gagnet or even at Georges Blanc or you know you have to because it's not, not about the food it's really about the total experience and you can't just stand there at every service meeting try to hammer that into people if they see it or if somebody can go with you and it's like then you're two and then suddenly you're five three years later maybe you're 15 of you that have seen and you know so you're building something really yeah, and you're always learning. Yeah, I, you know, I, I certainly I don't want to eat a great meal after work, but uh, mm. it, if I have time off, it's you know there are few things better than a than a great meal, and I try to go after them. It's a, a pleasure both for professional reasons and for just you know the, the pure joy of doing it. We're running out of time, but I'm going to ask this one last question: If you could choose only three food items to bring with you to a desert island, what would they be? Uh, they should be things that you wouldn't get sick of if you were stranded for a couple of years. I mean, are there things that you absolutely would have to have in, a, in, yeah, in your kitchen? I know, uh, bread. Uh, Recycled, like, of course. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Recycled bread, of course. From Zabar's, hopefully. <laughs> um, I'd like a big uh, dried piece of uh, cudatello ham from... Uh, Romagna, Romagna region, and a uh, couple of cases of uh, Chambertin by Rousseau, <laughs> and that's it. But well, it doesn't sound so terrible. No, it sounds pretty good. Yeah, almost, almost <laughs> worth being stranded on Desert Island. What about you, Marcus? I would probably have some sushi with me, and then I would have some, after all that fish, I would probably have a, a, some really nice um, dried Maybe some dried fish, like dried tuna or something. I really love having like shaved dried tuna. I love that. Mm -hmm. Well, you could always catch this fish while you were living on the desert. Exactly. I would be yeah. too lazy. You know? <laughs> I, just I was thinking wasabi, uh, yeah. rice, uh, you know, a sharp spear for me to catch some <laughs> fish on a regular basis. Maybe a big bottle of vodka. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for being with us. Uh, by the way, uh, Anthony Bourdain will be signing books outside, uh, I gather, right? Did you know about yeah. that? Yeah, he I guess will. So. Yeah. Uh, if you if you are one of those rare people who doesn't own Kitchen Confidential, well, shame on you. Pick up the book. And I want to thank all three of these wonderful gentlemen, Scott Bryan, Marcus Samuelson, and Anthony Bourdain for being so much fun today. And thank all of you for coming here. Yeah.